We've been talking about what it is to walk with the Lord. I've been thinking about the Apostle Paul. What a fascinating guy. The way that he was inspired to put these things down for us. Uh, Just patterns that I see coming out in this epistle, which means letter, this letter that he wrote uh, from prison, jail in Rome to the city of Ephesus, to the church that was there, a group of house churches, most likely, and writing to them and and, uh, essentially giving pertinent instruction on what it is to have a relationship with the Lord. And one of the words that he uses repetitively throughout this epistle is the word walk. He says that this is about walking with the Lord. And we know that it's a biblical metaphor for a person's lifestyle. When you talk about somebody's walk, you're talking about their lifestyle. You're talking about what they do as a Christian. And this word walk is mentioned seven times in the book of Ephesians. We're going to look at the seventh and final one today. But looking at the word itself, I'm going to give you some grammar this morning. We're going to cover quite a bit of grammar. Koine Greek grammar. Uh, I'm not a Greek scholar, but I I study some really good ones. (laughs) There's a few that are a little sketchy, but uh, looking at the grammar of the word walk, it's in the present active imperative, all right? What that means is it's an ongoing thing, present. It's in the present tense. It's an active, it's a verb. It's in the active, and it's an imperative. We talk about uh, imperatives in the Bible. They're commands, There's an indicative. We'll talk about the difference between an indicative and an imperative later on. But this is a command. He's saying, walk this way. It's not optional when he says that. He's talking about this will be the way that the the lifestyle of a Christian looks. And the instruction that he's giving, we've seen over and over again that he gives instruction, says, don't look this way. Don't walk this way according to the course of the world, but walk that way. So, We understand that in Christianity, to walk with Jesus, yes, it's an initial decision, uh, making a decision for Christ. It's you begin to walk with him, but that is always followed by a lifelong lifestyle of discipleship. That's what it is to walk with the Lord. Interesting, uh, our walk with him begins at a point in time. It becomes a process through time, and it culminates beyond time, when we graduate, when we go to be with the Lord. Paul, in this letter, as I mentioned, he's talked about what it is to walk a number of times. And every time that he uses this, this word, this metaphor to walk, he uses it in a contrast to something else. And he bounces back and forth. I'm going to look at that briefly as we get rolling, because it's really important that we understand what he's getting at here. In chapter 2, verse 2, he says, we formerly walked according to the course of this world. He contrasts that in chapter 2, verse 10. He says, now as his workmanship, we've looked at that, his poema, his creative work, we were created to walk in good works. So he contrasts walking according to the course of the world with walking in good works. In chapter 4, verse 1, he says, we're to walk worthy of the calling with which we were called. He contrasts that in verse 17 of chapter 4. He, said we should, he says we should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their minds. Further in chapter 4, he talks about 
putting off the old man and putting on the new. He contrasts the old man, the old nature, the nature of Adam with the new nature that we have in Christ. Finally, we looked at last week, we looked at the contrast. He says, you were darkness and now you're light in the Lord. And, and he, we talked about that at length last week. We talked about back in chapter 7 or 5 at the beginning of the, the chapter. He says, this is what the love of God looks like. He, says, he contrasts the sacrificial love of God, the agape love of God, with the self-centered worldly love of fallen humanity. Again, another contrast. We looked at the fact, he says, walk in love as beloved children. He contrasts that with not walking immorally, as sons of disobedience. So you have beloved children on one side, sons of disobedience on the other. When we looked at walk as children of light, again, he says, you were once darkness in chapter 5, verses 8 through 14. So as we look at these contrasts that Paul does, we're going to go further in the text. We're going to read uh, verses 15 to 21 this morning. That's where we're going to cover. We're going to see that he continues to do this bounce back and forth. He lays out something, and then he contrasts it. He lays out another thing, and then he contrasts it. And, and, and the Lord willing, it will make sense, and we'll see that he's bringing this to a point of culmination in his writing. We're going to look at a major pivot point in the Word of God this morning, a major pivot point in everything he said in Ephesians up to this very point, it, and it dictates the way we interpret the rest of the book, the rest of the letter, and it dictates the way we live our lives. So in verse 15, we read, see then that you walk, there's that word again, circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. There's a contrast. Redeeming the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Another contrast. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. So he continues to contrast how we are to walk. In verse 15, he says, see then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. More instruction on how to walk. As I mentioned, this is the seventh and final time that he uses that word. And he says to do that circumspectly. That as we walk circumspectly, if you take the word apart, you can take the derivative, the word circle, and to inspect. So he's saying, look all around. Be very careful is how it translates. Be very careful as you walk, inspecting all around. And, and understand the culture that these guys were in was godless. It was full of, of people exercising their depravity, very much like the culture that we live in today. The first century was not a lot different. I've mentioned before, different players, same set, same circumstance. The point is, is he says to walk circumspectly, to walk responsibly, looking all around. I remember, as I was preparing for this, I remembered back in my 20s, I was a young entrepreneur. I had my first corporation when I was 22, and I... Uh, had gone up to Seattle. I, I lived uh, outside, of, or actually in Tacoma at the time. And uh, I'd gone up to Seattle because I, I had an appointment with a, an entrepreneur up there that he owned a, a chain of restaurants, 
uh, yogurt shops. He was one of the guys that founded Farrell's Ice Cream Parlors. And, you know, he had his hands in a lot of different things. And one of his uh, investments, one of his enterprises was he had a soup kitchen in Pioneer Square. And what it was modeled after was back in the Depression era, they had soup lines and soup kitchens. And he modeled this restaurant. It was a very nice restaurant. Uh, after that kind of motif, and it was very 20s, very Art Deco on the inside, and, and we're sitting there in this, in this restaurant, and he said, John, I want to tell you one thing, that if you're going to be an entrepreneur, you need to remember this. And I said, what's that, Jack? And he said, pay attention to detail. I don't care what you do, pay attention to the details. And I said, well, what do you mean? He said, look around. I looked around, and I, he said, what do you see? And I said, well, I see a pretty nice restaurant. This is nice. The ambiance in here is really nice. It was very calming, and, you know, it was like bricks, and, and like I said, decorated well and all that. He said, well, what else do you see? And he kind of pressed me, and I, I, I wasn't connecting with what he wanted. And he said, look at the flowers on the tables. I said, yeah, those really add a lot. He had a, a, just a, a kind of a, a, a splash of flowers on every table in the place. And he said, those aren't plastic. They're fresh. He said, do you know how much money I spend every month on flowers? And, and he told me, well, I don't remember the amount, but it was like in the thousands of dollars. He said, pay attention to detail. That might seem a small detail to you, and people may not even consciously think it, but they walk in here, and it adds freshness. It, it brings just a sort of an atmosphere that is very pleasing. He said, that's what I mean when I say pay attention to detail. What Paul is saying here when he says, walk circumspectly. He's saying, pay attention to detail. Look all around. Look at the situation that you're in. Look at the behavior of the people around you. Inspect things closely. Have an informed faith is essentially what he's saying. And yes, we are saved utterly by God's grace. We stand because of his grace. We walk in his grace. That's all free. And there is a place where we do the work where we have an informed faith. You're here because you want to have an informed faith. You want to worship the Lord. You want to worship corporately or you want to worship online because that's where you're comfortable at right now. That's all great. And having an informed faith is why we come together and we study God's word. We don't want to have a blind faith. We want to be informed. We want to be circumspect in the way we go about walking with the Lord. That's his point. That's mine too, <laughs> as we go. He says, walk not as fools, but as wise. Obviously, those are opposites. They're antithetical to one another. To be foolish is not walking wisely. To be wise is to not walk foolishly. That, that makes sense. A few other contrasts that I would add here would be to walk diligently. Diligence, is, it, that's a Bible term. And not carelessly. We want to be diligent with the things of God. We want to exercise vigilance, being vigilant, watchful, instead of being indifferent in our lives. We want to walk intentionally. We want to be informed as opposed to being ignorant, willfully ignorant, I would add, not just I didn't know. But we want to, we want to, we want to have intentionality in our walk with the Lord. Verse 16, he goes on, he says, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Literally, this means making the most of every situation and every opportunity. I want to 
clarify something here. For years, when I would read this, when it said redeeming the time, I'd think I need to be busier. (laughs) That's not what he's meaning at all. It's not the intent of this passage. He's not saying redeem the time, you know, get off your duff and get moving. He's not saying that. What he's saying, there there are two Greek words for the word time here. Uh, One of them is used here, one of them is not. One is hours, minutes, days, months. What time is it? Another is, it's about time. (laughs) Another is, actually, this word, it's a marketing term from the first century. And what it means is to buy out something completely at a good price at an opportune time. The Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 6, verse 10 says the same, uses the same exact Greek word. It's literally translated opportunity there as we have opportunity. So what he's saying is these are evil days. Take advantage of the opportunities that exist. Take advantage of the opportunities to exercise your faith. Take advantage of the opportunities to be in fellowship, to take advantage of the opportunities to be in prayer, take advantage of the opportunities to be able to study his word. Those are the things that we focus on in the body of Christ. Those are the things that produce in us spiritual health. The opportunity is there. The exhortation here is use it. Why? Because we live in evil days. We live in an evil culture. Look around. I've mentioned many times these last months, you you certainly don't need me to tell you how crazy and upside down and and utterly insane things are out there. Uh, I I marvel. I, I look around. I, I, when I am being circumspect, I look and I think, wow, Satan's not hiding in a corner anymore trying to throw these things in from the sidelines. He's right out there in front. And, and, and it's almost daily you see things that are coming across in the media, or if you want to call it that, or, or you hear about things that are going on over the hill in Portland or whatever. And it's like, we live in evil days. We need to be circumspect. We need to be wise. Verse 17, he says, therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So the question then comes up in looking at this verse is what is being unwise? The answer is found in the first word of the verse. He says, therefore, when we see the word therefore, we say, what's it there for? And it refers directly back to what's just been said. So when he says, therefore, don't be unwise, he's saying, don't walk without being circumspect. Don't walk without redeeming the time. Don't be ignorant of these things. What he's essentially saying is don't be careless with, ignorant of, or indifferent to the things of God. That's what he is saying equates to being unwise. We want to be wise. We want to accurately handle the things of God in our lives. Then Paul here, as we go forward into verse 18, He uses yet another contrast, and he tells us what God's revealed will is. He says, don't be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And now he's going to tell us. He's not going to leave us hanging. In verse 18, he says, and do not be, or the word literally is become. He says, do not become drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Fascinating. The contrast here is do not get drunk with wine, and do be filled with the Spirit. That's how he balances this out. That's how he contrasts it. Why would The question here is, is, why would Paul employ such a strong contrast, and why this one? Why on earth would he put 
don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. I mean, that seems odd on the surface. And we're going to tackle that. We're going to take it apart and look at it. Uh, And hopefully it'll make more sense to you as you go through here. It's as though this verse is exhorting us if, (laughs) this is a stretch I know, but if you're thinking about leaving church this morning or finishing the service, if you're catching it online, to go out and get drunk, don't do it. That's pretty easy to assume, right? It's obviously unthinkable. I mean, and, and please come and see me afterwards if that's really on your mind. But, you know, uh, <laughs> you didn't come to church and you're not sitting there itching for the closing prayer so I could go get hammered. You know, that's not, that's not part of it. It's not part of it. And, he, and Paul knows that. His point is it is equally unthinkable that we wrap up this service this morning and not be filled with the Spirit of God. That's his point. So if you're thinking of leaving church this morning and not being filled with the Spirit, don't do it. Be filled with the Spirit is what he says. He says that when you're filled with wine, that, that leads to dissipation. That's the word, the, King, the New King James word is rendered differently, but it's the same Greek word all the way through, and it's the word asotia. And what that is, is it's a behavior which shows lack of concern or thought for the consequences of an action. It's essentially what irresponsibility is. He says these are senseless deeds, they're reckless deeds, it's recklessness. That's what dissipation or asotia means in this context as relates to becoming drunk with alcohol. By definition, to become drunk is to be captivated, motivated, and activated by alcohol. I'll explain. To be captivated by alcohol is... The, the root word here for, for drunkenness, it's the same in Romans 13. He talks about not spending time in carousing and drunkenness and all. The root word is methe, where we get the word meth. And what it is is something that conquers your will. To be captivated by alcohol is to be engaged with alcohol to the point that it now has conquered your will. That now you are, that's why they call it being under the influence of, whether it's alcohol or drugs or whatever, it's something that you have allowed, you've taken in, and now it has conquered your will. You're captivated by it. It's the difference between drinking and becoming drunk. I'm not going to make a doctrine about you can't drink. The Bible never says that. It, It alludes to the opposite in some context. However, that's a personal conviction that if somebody chooses to have a glass of wine and that's their deal, Paul says, don't you dare stumble somebody else. I remember after I got saved, my mother, who was an alcoholic, uh, just a loving woman, but she struggled with alcohol till the day she died. I told her, mom, I'm not buying any booze for you anymore. She said, well, how come, honey? I said, because I love Jesus and I, and I know that that's not good for you. And she struggled with it, but she knew that I was no longer a resource and nor was I going to drink with her. At that time, I drank socially. I don't anymore. The point is, is he says, don't be captivated by alcohol. Uh, There's a tipping point. For some people, it's a little. My father, when he was alive, he, he would drink half a beer and he's like starting to slur his words. For some people, it's a lot. My mother, who was an alcoholic, as I mentioned, she was, uh, she was, she drank from the time she got up in the morning till she went to bed just to maintain what was normalcy for her. And it, it, it saddened me to see that. She never 
was like sloppy drunk, but she was always drinking. So for some people, it's a little. For some people, it's a lot. But for everybody, alcohol is a very real danger to be reckoned with. Word of advice, if you partake of alcohol, again, not going to make a doctrine against it. A couple of things. Do it at home. If you exercise liberty as a Christian, exercise it responsibly. You don't know when you could stumble someone else. And and that's just wisdom from God's word. Read Romans 14. The other thing is the same thing that I told my kids when I educated my kids about drugs. I said, you know what? They're fun for a season. (laughs) My kids would look at me like, what are you, nuts, dad? Are you telling me I should start using drugs? I'd say, look, I want to tell you about drugs. They're fun. But that's the hook. Nobody gets up in the morning and says, hey, man, I think I'm going to go have a few drinks and just have a horrible time. Nobody gets up in the morning and says, hey, you know, I think I'm going to go out and buy some weed and whatever. But if you're not careful, you get up one morning and instead of you having it, it has you. Then you're in bondage. Then you've got real problems. He says, be wise. Definitely be wise when it comes to alcohol. If you're the type of person that can't have any, don't. Alcoholics Anonymous is is right in, in the assertion that they make about the first drink. You can't just have one. And if that's you, don't be stumbled. In short, just be wise when it comes to that. To be motivated now by alcohol, once you're captivated, in other words, you've surrendered to its influence on you, now you move into the, the aspect of being motivated by alcohol. My stepfather, not my, my birth father, who was a great guy and all, but my stepfather was way different. <laughs> uh, he was the type of a guy that when he drank, he drank to get drunk. And when he drank to get drunk, his thought processes, his motivations, his thinking would change. He would become mean. He would be not only captivated, but now motivated. The motives of his heart, the motives that he was running with were different when he was under the influence of alcohol. What that did was activate him. Captivated, motivated, now activated. My stepfather would become another person and he would act out in horrible ways. And I'm not going to go into a lengthy thing on my childhood, Yeah, it was challenging. But I would watch him do horrible things to my mother, do horrible things to my siblings, especially my younger sister who never got over it. I would watch him do horrible things to my family, myself included, because he was captivated, motivated, and activated under the influence of alcohol. As alcoholism and drug addiction are an example of something that controls and characterizes one's life, it's worth noting that they must be intentionally repeated to maintain their effect. That's the nature of addiction. We call that addiction, where people want to go back and have more. They need to to feed that. They need to go back to it. And and, and we'll, we'll talk about that in a few minutes a little bit more. But I also want to note, too, that being captivated, motivated, activated by alcohol doesn't necessarily result in abuse. In my case, it did. But the point of the potentially devastating effects of alcohol. So the contrast here that Paul gives, again, he says, do not get drunk with wine. Do be filled with the Spirit. It's an interesting contrast. To be filled is to be captivated, motivated, and activated 
not by alcohol, but by the Holy Spirit. Same thing, same effects, but different in, insofar as this contrast. He, he's contrasting the flesh and the spirit all the way through this letter. And, and this is one aspect where he's talking about what controls you. Instead of being controlled by alcohol, being controlled by the base things of the world, he's talking about being controlled by the Holy Spirit. He calls that being filled with the Spirit. What does that look like in practical terms? The answer is found in verses 19 through 21. He says, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, and submitting to one another in the fear of God. There's a pattern here. Healthy relationships horizontally with others, vertically with God, are a primary function and outworking of the Holy Spirit's fullness in our lives. Being filled with the Spirit results in this. Notice in verse 19, he says, speaking to one another. And then he says, singing, making melody in your heart to the Lord. That's the, the first is horizontal. The next is vertical. Giving thanks always to God the Father. That's vertical. Submitting to one another. That's horizontal. He's talking about relationships. And a primary function of the fullness, the filling of the Holy Spirit is for relationships. That's part of why this, this statement is pivotal. Up until now in this entire epistle, you could look at the, the, the Christianity in general. It comes up to and it rests on whether or not one is filled with the Spirit. From this point forward... He's going to be talking about these relationships when he talks about wives, he talks about husbands, he talks about children, he talks about parenting, and it comes back and it can only be interpreted and understood in light of the filling of the Holy Spirit. This is a critical understanding that we must have. Healthy relationships, horizontally and vertically, are the outworking, the fruit of the fullness of God's Spirit in our lives. I'm going to deviate a bit here, and we're going to do a word study on what this, this, this verb, you know what a verb is, it's an action word, it denotes action. Uh, this verb, to be filled, what, that, what it is. And I'm going to stretch your brains a little bit, we're going to do a bit of a, a Greek lesson here, going to get into uh, the details of this word and its use and its structure in the original language in Koine Greek. Uh, and we're going to look at it. We're going to see that there are four dependent participles used as adjectives in describing this word or this term, be filled. The, uh, the participles are the ones that follow, be filled. He says, speaking, singing, thanking, and submitting. I want you to understand, too, in the context of this, is the Spirit's fullness in our lives, in the life of every believer, is the norm. It's normative. It is not optional equipment. It's not the exception. It's not only for the spiritually elite, whatever that might be. <laughs> I, would, I would have a talk with somebody that considered themselves to be that. It's not for people who are just feeling pious, religious. No, this is for all of us. Now, again, I'm not a Greek scholar, but Fortunately, we have solid Greek scholars that can give critical analysis and insights into this language that we read as we go through the New Testament. 
And again, looking at the word uh, translated be filled has four dimensions to it. Uh, They're clearly seen in the construction of this sentence, of this statement, to be filled with the Spirit. I want to look at what those four things are. We're going to be brief about it, but it's worth taking a look at them. They're very important in understanding why this is a pivotal statement and verse. The the verb to be filled is first, it's in the imperative mood. Second, it's in the present tense. Third, it's in the passive voice. And fourth, it's in the plural form. It's important. You don't have to remember that, but it's important to understand how this was written, the way that it was written, what was being impressed upon the people's hearts that understood this language. It's very much that we have to add these things in because it is a foreign language. And I could speak this in English with the same points of emphasis that would make sense, but we have to take it apart because it's not our language. So the first is that it's written in the imperative mood. What that means, you know what the difference is between an indicative and imperative is. An indicative, well, we'll talk about that in a minute, but an imperative is a command. He's saying this is not an option. It's not a suggestion. I'm not saying this is a baby. He's saying this is what walking with the Lord ought to look like, excuse me, in your life. In the Apostle Paul's mind, As I mentioned, it would be equally unthinkable for us to come away from this study and not be filled with the Spirit. It would be the same as it would be for us to go out and promptly get drunk. He's saying, don't do it. And it's the same weight in this statement. It's the strength of the verb being in the imperative mood. That's his point. Again, not a suggestion, a command. The question then becomes, what do we do with the imperatives or the commands of God? If you're, the answer is, if you're a healthy believer, you take them seriously. There are things that he says, this is what it needs to look like in your life. And this is one of them. The second thing we look at is this is in the present tense. What that means is this is the walking, being filled with the Spirit is a continual experience. It's a present experience in my life. And it's a continually present experience that I'm filled with his spirit. Just as alcohol or drugs must be repeated for effect, talked about that with the nature of addiction, so too the filling of the spirit is repeated for effect. As believers choose to receive Christ for salvation, they must subsequently continually choose to open themselves to the spirit's ongoing guidance and control. It's an ongoing process. Our lives in Christ are not one monumental experience, but a continual succession of experiences. You may have heard me mention before, it's not the big monumental decisions in your life that add up to a life. It's those decisions that you make every day through the day, day in, day out, week in, week out, month in, month out, that add up to a life. And it's either a life that's been lived being filled with the Spirit or a life that's being lived in an unwise manner. And that's Paul's point. He's essentially saying in this, be continually filled with the Spirit. The third thing we look at here is it's in the passive voice. And what that means is something you allow to happen. Verbs can be active or passive. If they're active, they're what you do. If they're passive, it's what is being done to you. Understand the difference. This is in the passive voice. 
This verb is talking about what is coming at me, what is being done to me. What it means is that we have a responsibility continually to make sure that something is being done to us, that we're continually being filled with the Spirit, that we're opening ourselves to the Spirit's work. Again, it's not a suggestion, it's an order from God. The fourth thing we look at is this is in the plural form. What that means is it's for everybody. This was addressed to everyone that Paul was writing to when he wrote this letter to the Ephesians. Who was he addressing? Wives, husbands, children, parents. And we'll, we'll be studying that beginning next week on into chapter 6 because all of that is in light of this. It's in the plural form, so it's relevant to everybody. Going forward, it sets the stage for the rest of this letter, the rest of this book that we're studying. Because we assume that this passage of Scripture is inspired by the Holy Spirit, that it's eternally true, that it's relevant, we can also assume that it's relevant for us, that it's for you and I to be able to take in and to apply to our lives. That's how to be filled is defined. I want to wrap up with what it means in practical terms to be captivated, motivated, and activated by the Holy Spirit. First, we'll look at what it is to be captivated. We've talked a lot about what it is to be in Christ in these studies in the book of Ephesians. In chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, the Apostle Paul wrote, In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also you, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who's the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. That's a mouthful, but essentially what he's saying is you were captivated by the Holy Spirit at the moment of your conversion, at the moment you trusted Christ. That when he moved in, he took hold of your life. He took hold of your heart. He came into the inner man, the inner woman, and began to take control. That's what it is to be captivated by the Spirit of God. In Colossians chapter 2, in the New American Standard, uh, the Apostle Paul writing to the church at Colossae says, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. In the verse 10 there in Colossians, he says, in him you have been made complete, captivated by the Spirit of God. What is it to be motivated by the Spirit of God? Now in Christ, our motivations have changed, haven't they? At least they should have. The old ways no longer fit. They no longer serve us. It's like there's a new sheriff in town and, and the old things, they just don't work. In, in chapter 4, we looked at, in, in verses 22 through 24, he said, put off concerning your former conduct, the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind and that you may put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. That's what it means to be motivated now by the spirit of God. In 1 Corinthians 5, verse 17, he says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. So when we look at what it is to be filled with the Holy Spirit, captivated now by the Spirit as God's own possession, that's you, that's me, if you belong to Christ, motivated now in the Spirit to think in an entirely new way, 
I don't know if you were, I remember so clearly and, and still that process is engaged at times, but especially right after I got saved, it was like, man, that, that just rubs me wrong. Oh my goodness, my vocabulary got really small for a while there. And it was like, man, I just, I, it, it, I'll, I'll try to watch something on television. I can't do it. It just grieves me. That's because I've been, now I'm now motivated by the Spirit of God. I'm activated to a whole new way of relating to God and to others. That's the relationships in my life as I go through. And it's through the work of the Spirit. What does that look like in my life? It looks like speaking, singing, thanking, submitting. Now, I could end there and say, let's pray and have a final song and call it good. But I don't think that that's, I mean, that's the principle. This is the principle. This is the transaction. And this is, this is right on. This is good stuff. It's right from God's word. But if I stop there, there's a good chance you're going to go away dis- disillusioned. We have to take this one step further. Now, let's get really honest. Let's get really real. You might be thinking, well, Pastor John, that's good stuff. That's really good. That's, that's good Bible teaching, and that's good, good stuff. But you don't know my husband. You don't know my wife. You don't know my kids. You don't know my boss. You don't know what I'm going through. I'm a believer, but I'm not doing a lot of speaking and singing and thanking and submitting these days. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30, the Apostle Paul wrote, we studied it a couple weeks ago, He says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. He also says that in chapter 1, that we were sealed by the Holy Spirit. He goes on in verse 31 of chapter 4, he says, get rid of all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, evil speaking, and malice. Right into chapter 5, get rid of immorality, uncleanness, covetousness, idolatry, get rid of all manner of darkness. So the question is, what's the point, pastor? What does all this have to do with being filled with the Spirit? The answer is it has everything to do with being filled with the Spirit. Because when the Holy Spirit came into your life, your old sinful nature was not eradicated. What you are as a fallen human being did not cease to exist. In fact, the Bible basically says that when the Holy Spirit filled your life, you became a battlefield. Didn't matter to you before. Now it does. And that's a good thing. There should be this battle that goes on. The the Bible tells us that the the flesh sets itself against the Spirit of God and the the Spirit against the flesh, that they war with one another for the position and the power in my life. The Spirit fights against that which resists it, and that thing that resists it is the old fallen self. That old fallen self will show itself with rage, bitterness, malice, sexual impurity, greed. It's your flesh. It's my flesh. It's that old nature. What it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit on an ongoing basis is to be aware of the Holy Spirit's presence within you and the work he wants to accomplish through you. But it also means to be equally aware of the fact that there's something stirring you that will grieve the Holy Spirit if you choose to express it. Being filled, you have the privilege You have the responsibility and the God-given power to tip the scales in any given circumstance, choosing the way to go. Being filled with the Spirit is, yes, it's God's will to invade increasing areas of our hearts and our lives because we are in the process of being sanctified, 
being made holy. We've been declared holy at the cross. We're being made holy. A primary part of the Spirit's work is to cleanse us, to sanctify us, to show us. I don't know how many times the Lord will speak to me in that still small voice and say, John, I just wanted you to see your own heart. Whether it's something that my wife said that I, I flare for a moment or, or something that somebody did or uh, seeing some injustice in the news, that old nature is always there. So we can understand the principles of these things, folks, but unless we put them on, unless we activate by faith the Holy Spirit's work in our lives, we can understand what it is to be captivated and motivated, but not live a life that's activated by the Holy Spirit. I can't encourage you enough as the Spirit puts his finger on things in your life that he he comes to us gently so often. He says, you know, John, I I would really, I'd like for you to surrender that. I want that. Sometimes he pries our fingers off of things because we don't want to give it up, but it's his work. What he wants is a heart that's yielded to his sanctifying hand. What he wants is a heart that's yielded to him doing the work. Salvation is all about God doing for us what we cannot do for ourselves. The key, yield to him. Walk with him. Be continually filled with him. We can't change ourselves. But as we yield to the work that he does within us, as we're yielding to his captivated, captivating, motivating, activating hand in our lives by the Holy Spirit, our lives are enriched. Our lives are transformed. People see what's going on. There's a change in you. You're just perhaps calmer than you ever were, or perhaps they see that there's renewed purpose in your life when you were aimless and wandering. Perhaps they see that you're being circumspect where you were kind of sloppy about things before. Those are all the fruit of his spirit as he's working in us. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. Yes, I love being engaged in worship and I love to sing to the Lord. That's part of what it is to experience his filling in our lives. But I can't sustain myself on that alone. There's, there's, there's grit, there's meaning, there's substance to our walk with the Lord. As we walk, Paul's saying here, look at all the different things that he said here in this letter on ways to walk and ways to not walk. All of it comes to this pivot point on being filled with the Spirit. Coming forward from there, as we look next week, starting at wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. Fathers, don't exasperate your children, and so on. We'll see all of that refers back to this, to this one statement. Don't be drunk with wine. Don't leave here to go get drunk. Equally, don't leave here not filled with the Spirit. That's God's will for you. That's God's will for me today. Father, thank you for your word, for your divinely inspired word. Thank you, Lord, that you are so patient with us. And we pray, Father, that as you identify things in our lives, perhaps we've never come to you at all. Uh, perhaps you're watching this online and, 
and the Spirit of God is tugging on your heart and, and showing you that there is a better way to live, then pray a prayer something like, God, I've been running from you all my life, and I, I want to stop running. I, I want to embrace you. I want to let the weight of my life down on you, Jesus, because I want your Holy Spirit to control me. I'm not doing a good job of it myself, so I give myself to you. If that's what you're doing, I guarantee you God will do that. For the rest of us, Father, we pray, work in us. Thank you, Lord, for your Holy Spirit. As Jesus said in the Gospel of John, I will not leave you as orphans, but I'm going to go, but I'll come back. And when he did, it was through the agency of the Holy Spirit. And we're so grateful. We're not left to try to work these things out on our own or to try to change ourselves or any of those other nonsensical things that religion tries to produce, but through the precious relationship we have with you, through the blood of the Lamb poured out for us. Lord, we thank you. We're grateful that you love us, that you accept us, that we're accepted in the beloved just as we are. And these are things that you want to do in our lives because you want our We praise you this morning. Amen.